On Tuesday, it was revealed at the Emergencies Act hearings that CSIS advised Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to invoke the Emergencies Act to quash the Freedom Convoy, despite the fact the convoy did not meet the threshold of a national security threat. Also, Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair was the first cabinet minister to testify at the hearings, and it was revealed he urged the government to, quote, keep the language down prior to the prime minister calling the convoy a fringe minority with unacceptable views. From turfs to Trump, scores of big names, including some Canadians, are back on Twitter thanks to Elon Musk. And Prime Minister Trudeau says he was never briefed on China's alleged interference during the 2019 election, but his critics aren't buying it. Hello Canada, it's Tuesday, November 22nd, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Anthony Fury. And I'm Andrew Lawton. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. On day 27 of the Emergency Act hearing, CSIS Director David Vigneault confirmed that he advised Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to invoke the act, despite also acknowledging that the Freedom Convoy did not meet the threshold of a national security threat. So on February 13th, that's the day before Trudeau used the never-before-used measures, Vigneault advised the PM to invoke the act while also stating clearly that a threat to national security, as defined by Section 2 of the CSIS Act, well, it was not met. Here's what that sounded like. Uh, so, sorry, that threat that you're speaking about is with respect to individuals, but there, the protest itself did not pose a Section 2 threat to the security of Canada. What we've testified to is that we did not uh, made a determination that the event itself, uh, we, uh, and I think it, it's, it's part of our uh, testimony, yes. Okay, and yet you still advised the Prime Minister to invoke the Emergencies Act? Yes, I did. And you did that not because you thought that there was the, the protest posed a threat to the security of Canada as defined in Section 2 of the CSIS Act, but because you were reassured that threat to the security of Canada had a different meaning under the, in the context of the Emergencies Act. I think uh, my testimony was, uh, was in part that, but it was also based on all of the other information that you know, I became uh, aware of during uh, all of the interdepartmental meetings and, and cabinet meetings I participated in. So it was, I was provided, uh, that opinion was provided, if you want, as a uh, national security advisor, as opposed to a, uh, the director of CSIS specifically. And emergency preparedness minister Bill Blair also testified on that day. Meeting notes revealed that prior to Trudeau calling the convoy a, quote, fringe minority with unacceptable views, Blair actually urged the government to keep the language down to prevent escalation. Here's what that sounded like. The one I'm uh, going to ask you to talk about is C. Uh, we need to keep the language down. And uh, probably the people in the room knew what you were talking about, and you probably used more words than just that. So if you could flesh that out for us, what, what, you were, what message you were trying to get across uh, during that briefing when you said we need to keep the language down? I believe we all have a responsibility to do what is necessary to keep the peace. And, and I was concerned that inflammatory language could incite a more um, violent response, potentially, um, or, or in, 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 in incite others to continue to, to come to the protest. And, and so I think one, one needs to maintain, and I have some experience in this, 
um, in, in your language around an event to, to, to speak of it in such a way as to not aggravate it. All right, Andrew, I need your help here unpacking this a little bit, particularly the stuff with David Vigneault. Are we splitting hairs here saying, well, I did, but I didn't, and it's all about this definition of national security threat? Well, I, let's actually talk about this, because what Jody Thomas, the national security advisor, said, and what uh, David Vigneault seemed to say is that there was a definition of a threat to the security of Canada in the Emergencies Act that's broader than what's in the CSIS Act. But if you read the Emergencies Act, it says the following, threats to the security of Canada has the meaning assigned by Section 2 of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service Act. It doesn't say is inspired by, is informed by, is has the meaning assigned by, as well as other things. It says there is an absolute equivalence between those two. So it would be really useful to find out where this legal interpretation that Mr. Vigneault, who's not a lawyer, was coming from. All right. And help me also understand who's actually saying, yes, we needed the act. Because prior to these testimonies of David Vigneault, CSIS director, which is not a political position, uh, is an appointed position, but Jody Thomas, do we call her a political position? I know she works very closely with the prime minister. How, how would you classify that, that post? As I understand, it's not technically a political position, although certainly it sounded like she had an agenda that was a bit more aligned with the government's. Okay, so we have had weeks of testimony where we've basically said the narrative from the hearings is that every senior law enforcement official, public sector bureaucrat all says, no, we never said do this. And that was the case moving through the ranks, fairly senior people, until you just get to these two top people, Vigneault and Jody Thomas, who are both seeming like they were more green lighting it. But where did they get it from? They didn't get it in consultation with anybody else in, in policing and in OPP, among the RCMP, even perhaps down the ranks in CSIS. Yes, and also finding out who asked for it or recommended it doesn't mean it was justified. It, I think it actually just helps us narrow the search down for how this came to be on the back end of it. Bill Blair's comments are pretty interesting. Tone it down, because while Blair is definitely in cabinet and furthering the Trudeau narrative a little bit, he's still, I guess, staying true to his experience as a former Toronto police chief and uh, other policing positions, where I guess he says best practices mean don't inflame people, whatever the issue, whatever the gathering. Of course, Trudeau went the opposite way. Yeah, and, and Blair, to his credit, had a very strong position on the independence of police. Now, you could say that's a little bit rich, given other news that's come out in the last few months about the Nova Scotia shooting inquiry. But he seemed to very right. much be in agreement with the Doug Ford position that politicians cannot direct police. And, and that actually, whether intentionally or not, stood in contrast with that uh, call that Justin Trudeau had with Doug Ford, kind of wondering why he wasn't sending in the police to win. All right. We know that the rest of the hearings this week are going to be basically the Trudeau messaging machine. Lots of cabinet ministers testifying. What are you expecting? I, I think that we're going to see some of the usual talking points, but I'm very interested in Marco Mendicino's testimony. This is a guy who's not always been the best at remembering the talking points in the binder. So maybe we'll get some unintentional candor from him. Scores of big names have been reinstated on Twitter after Elon Musk took over the social media giant. 
In addition to names like that of former U.S. President Donald Trump and rapper Kanye West, some notable Canadians have been reinstated or unbanned. Renowned Canadian author and psychologist Jordan Peterson was allowed on Twitter and tweeting freely last Friday. Peterson had been suspended from the platform in June after referring to the transgender actor Elliot Page by the pre-transition name of Ellen Page and suggesting that the actor's breasts had been removed by a, quote, criminal physician. And also Canadian writer, journalist, and feminist activist Megan Murphy, who has been very critical of the transgender politics, has had her account reinstated on Sunday after a years-long ban going back to November 2018 when she referred to the BC trans activist Jessica Yaniv as a him instead of a her. This is the activist who notoriously went after estheticians who refused to wax her penis take from that what you will anthony is this like a new era of online free speech or do you think this is just a little bit of a honeymoon phase well i hope it is a new era of free speech and i gotta say after listening to you give that roundup and seeing that the main examples are about misgendering people i mean what on earth is going on here in terms of the disproportionality of it one can talk about what is proper manners and being polite and respectful to people's wishes but this idea that megan murphy banned for four years over this statement i mean wow absolutely and, and it's interesting because conservatives have it seemed like really been the ones bearing the brunt of online censorship in, in the past by social media companies. And now there's this inversion where Twitter has become the safe space for the right. And it's people on the left that are talking about seeking out alternatives like Mastodon, whatever that is. So do you think that at a certain point, everyone will just come back to Twitter? Or do you think the siloing will have just inverted itself? I, I think a bit of both. I mean, clearly, there's this there's this sort of split of people going into a whole bunch of different uh, social media places. This idea that there's going to be one com company dominating an entire economy. We heard that about Walmart in the 90s. Never really happened. We've been hearing about Amazon. We can hear it about social media. Facebook is having some challenges right now. People are drifting away from it. I think there's just going to be a, a more mixed bag moving forward. But Twitter is not going to immediately collapse. I think one of the things that people are, are perhaps not thinking about when they look at these changes that Elon Musk has brought in is for a long time, Silicon Valley, they had this slogan to define what they did called move fast and break things by which they mean, well, we're just guys who like bring about changes, just see what happens and then fix the changes later. And I think that's what Elon's doing with this whole blue checkmark $8 thing. Maybe he's going to uh, bring it back a few weeks or months later. I don't know. And they're just people who, who like sort of testing things in real time. And I think that's what's happening right now with Twitter. Just on a related note, do you think that Elon Musk will push back against some of the Canadian efforts to regulate online platforms? Well, we definitely saw him responding in, in one tweet to a, a Canadian asking about it, going, oh, I didn't really know about this. So maybe as he figures it out a bit more, he will push back because he's clearly identified himself as someone who is not afraid of pushing back when he wants to. And the free speech file is, is one that he is interested in pushing back on. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is claiming that he was never briefed on the fact that 11 candidates were suspected of benefiting from Chinese government interference during the 2019 election. So during a press conference in Tunisia, Trudeau said that he first learned about the incident from the media. Here's what those comments sounded like. Our government has always 
taken very seriously the responsibility of protecting Canadians, of working with our security agencies uh, to do everything we can to keep Canadians and our institutions uh, safe against foreign interference. I have asked my officials to examine these media reports and uh, give all the possible answers, everything they can, to the Parliamentary Committee uh, that's looking into this. But let me be clear, I do not have any information, nor have I been briefed, on any federal candidates receiving any money from China. The Prime Minister's claims appear to be contrary to reports that CSIS officials presented briefings to the government, to the Cabinet, in January on the potential subversion. On Monday, Conservative MP Todd Doherty slammed Trudeau's apparent about-face on these issues. Doherty tweeting, last week, both Trudeau and Melanie Jolie told media they raised, quote, serious concerns over China's interventions in the 2019 and 2021 elections. Now they're saying they have no info and have never been briefed. What? I guess we all experienced it differently, he tweeted. Andrew, a lot of people clearly not buying what Trudeau is saying. What do you think is the truth here? I think where there's smoke, there's fire. And and the government has oftentimes talked about the risk of foreign interference and foreign influence. But when it benefits them, which certainly seems to be the perception and interpretation a lot of people would have taken from this, they aren't as interested in, in delving into it. And it also is interesting that there is to the government a fairly large blind spot when it comes to China. For example, the uh, liberals have sided against transparency when it comes to the investigation into the scientists that worked at the biosecurity lab. So all of that, I think, is to say that the government needs to take these things more seriously, and it's a shame they aren't. Is it possible that CSIS was looking into these 11 MPs, acknowledging, I think reports say that nine of them are believed to be liberal MPs, and actually did somewhat withhold the information from the liberal cabinet because, well, People in the government are actually a part of this investigation. You have to be very careful when you're doing something like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of those nine could have been sitting at the very cabinet table when they went in to do the briefing. So you have to wonder how that is sort of coloring their approach to this. Do they do they bury it in a report and hope that people go and see it themselves? Or do they come and say, we've got a very big problem here? And, and CSIS has unfortunately been, and, and for some reasons it's understandable, a bit of a black box for information. With media, they say generally nothing. With government, you want to hope they're being transparent when the problems are things that government is best suited to be solved. All right, CSIS is a very difficult organization to, to ATIP, to get uh, freedom of information info out from. It's usually heavily redacted. They don't do regular press conferences, of course. So if we don't hear it from Trudeau, who filters things out, uh, maybe we'll hear it from media leaks. How else do we get to the bottom of this? That's the big problem. I mean, ideally, if the government were serious about this, they'd understand that this is larger than partisanship, that the differences between a liberal and a conservative are smaller than the difference between a politician beholden in some way to China and one who's not. So this should be prime evidence in support of a, a commission that is set up across party lines to get to the bottom of this. That's it for today, and don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.